0: Maybe seated. This morning, I want to start, uh, before we get into the sermon, do something I never do. Um, I, I believe that the, the, the preaching time in our church to be very sacred, and I, I, I typically just go right into it. You guys know that. But next week, I'm going to bring your attention to what's going on. Um, because this is so important to me, and because I believe it's such a priority for our church and for our community, next week, we're going to be having a family-equipping summit here in our church, it means we're going to have a, a guest speaker. He's going to preach next Sunday, and then from three to five in the evening, he's going to perform, give us two kind of um, seminars, and then we're going to do q and A, a Q&A time with the pastoral staff and with him. Um, and all of this is built so that we can equip our families to more faithfully live out the gospel in your homes. So that you can fulfill, if you'll remember back when we preached through uh, the God-centered family. And I preached from Deuteronomy 6. And I talked about the necessity for parents to be the primary disciples in in your kids' lives. And I think most of you felt the weight of that. But maybe you were left saying, but how do I do that? That's what we want to spend next Sunday doing. Is talking about how we can do that. And there's a place in here for our grandparents. We need you here. We need you here. We need you here so that you can help us sharpen one another, so that you can hear what's happening and you can speak into the life of your family. Some of you don't have kids yet, and you need to be here. All of the parents that have kids will tell you the best time to learn is before they come. Before they come. Some of you have teenagers. I'm I'm hopeful it'll help you. Some of you have young children like me, and I'm hopeful that it will help you. And so I'm calling on you all to commit to coming and being back with us next Sunday evening. Coming Sunday morning and then coming back Sunday evening. But I think this is also an opportunity, particularly Sunday evening, for us to have an outreach in our community. Our community is filled with young families. You guys know that. And we are filled with people that honestly are pretty indifferent to the church and pretty indifferent to the gospel. But they want to be good moms and they want to be good dads. Invite them to come. This is for them. It's free. Invite them to come and they might be, so that they might learn to be better parents, but also so that they might be exposed to the gospel community and to the gospel itself. So please come and commit to inviting someone to be a part of this next Sunday. Have you ever considered that Christians are always going to be a majority in a fallen world? The scriptures are clear on this. Jesus himself teaches this. And later on in the Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about the the narrow and the the wide paths, how uh, narrow is the path and hard is the way that leads to life. And only a few will find it. But wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many are on it. We could fairly say most are on it, multitudes are on it, and this dates all the way back to Genesis three throughout human history. The majority of people have been on this narrow path. So that means there's not many of us. There's few people that have the gospel entrenched in their lives. There's few people that have the gospel having taken root in their hearts, so that now they're living out gospel transformation. So. Let me ask you, doesn't this mean we should stand out? Doesn't this mean that we should stand out? That we have the gospel entrenched in our lives, that we are a minority pursuing godliness, pursuing holiness in this life, surrounded by people that are in the dark, that aren't pursuing holiness and aren't pursuing godliness, and are looking for something different entirely. Should we not stand out, brothers and sisters? Should our lives not look different in the way that we live them? Should the way that we spend our money not look different than everybody else? Should the way that our marriage looks not look different? Should the way that we raise our children not look different? Should the world not be asking the question, why do they live like that? But the truth is, is there's very little distinguishable difference between the church and the world. That we spend very much of our lives, very much of our resources, very much of our time... Not standing out from the world, not pressing into the world with the gospel, but instead trying to blend into the world. Trying to keep up with everybody else, trying to be like everybody else, trying to help our lives make sense in the light of our culture. But I believe what the scriptures teach us is that God's church, God's people, should stand out as a beam of light in a world of utter darkness. And throughout his sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus is getting to. He is teaching us, his disciples and his disciples of that day, what it means to live a gospel-centered life, a God-centered life, a life that, that stands out from everybody else, a life that we, where we are a beam of light in the darkness. And so if you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. As we read today radical words of Jesus... Radical words of Jesus that, were they applied to our lives, would indeed cause us to stand out from everybody else, would indeed mark us as the minority that are taking hold of something that the world can't make sense of, but knows that it needs. Stand with me as we read God's word together. We're going to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Go to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. And so what we have is Jesus is continuing to teach us what it means to live a gospel-centered life, as Jesus is continuing to teach us what it means to have a righteousness that is greater than the righteousness beheld by the or owned by the, the Pharisees. He goes to talk about what is probably the most famous part of the law, maybe outside of the Ten Commandments, but kind of in conjunction with the Ten Commandments, what I would call the retribution principle. And the retribution principle goes like this: it's about justice. And it says, so an eye for an eye, a, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. And the idea is, is that whoever uh, the perpetrator is, that his consequence would match the injury that he has brought into the life of someone else. And so if he has cost them their right eye, it must be his right eye that is taken. If it is, he has cost them a tooth, it must be his tooth that is taken from him. If he has taken the life of someone else, then his life should be taken from him. And so it's this this concept of retribution, of equal retribution, where the punishment matches the injury. Now the reason that that, the uh, Mosaic Law gives us the retribution principle and the reason that most uh, judicial systems of the history of the world have been based upon this, this biblical idea of a retribution system is because it protects both the victim and the perpetrator. It protects the victim in that it brings justice. It protects the the victim and, and perhaps potential victims in that it builds a society of walls, a society of standards, a society of logic, right? A society of consequence so that sinfulness doesn't just run rampant through the world in such a way that it violates all of your rights. And so it protects victims and it protects potential victims. But it also protects the perpetrator because how many of us know That every time something is done to us, how do we want to respond? We want to respond three or four or five, a hundred times stronger, don't we? Anybody that's ever been in a fight on a playground, you know that, right? Like somebody comes up and you're hanging on the monkey bars and somebody punches you in the cheek. What do you want to go do? You want to go back and you want to punch them twice as hard, right? Isn't that how we do? And so what the retribution principle does is it protects the perpetrator. He's going to receive consequence He's going to receive what is due to him, but he's not going to receive more than that. Now, why is Jesus talking about that in this context? Why is Jesus talking about the retribution uh, principle in the context of teaching about a righteousness that is greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees? The reason that Jesus is teaching this here is because, of course, the Pharisees have taken the retribution principle and they had manipulated it and they had twisted it. So the retribution principle was given to be carried out in the civil life of Israel. It was given to be carried out as in a judicial system, in a fair system. But what the Pharisees did is the Pharisees took the retribution principle and they applied it to daily living. And so what they did, rather than seeing it as a license toward justice, they took it as a license toward vengeance, toward retaliation. And so what they, in essence, would become is they would become judge, jury, and executioner in and of themselves. So somebody would, would wrong them, at least perceived by them. They would not go through any type of judicial system in any way. Instead, they would go and whatever was cost them, they would take that out on them personally without any sense of justice whatsoever. I think about John chapter 8. If you guys are familiar with what happens in John chapter 8, what happens is um, these Pharisees, they bring to Jesus a woman caught in the act of adultery, right? Now, they've not, not, they've not went through a court system. They've not had her in prison. No, instead, they, they bring her to Jesus, and what do they say? Well, the law says that she must be stoned to death. The law says that because of her adultery, what must happen is she must be put to death. But what we know is they didn't care anything about justice. They didn't go through the judicial systems of the day. They did not bring the man with her who was equally as guilty as she was. And instead what they're wanting to do is they're just bloodthirsty looking for an excuse to take her life from her. Looking for an excuse to pin Jesus up against the wall, right? This is very indicative of the way they would often treat the retribution principle. They would use the retribution principle to serve their own desires. To serve their own wants. To serve their own bloodthirsty taste for vengeance and for retaliation. And so what we have here in Matthew chapter 5 is we have Jesus responding to this. We have Jesus responding to this saying, not my disciples. Not my disciples. My disciples are not going to live as bloodthirsty uh, Vigilantes looking on, vigilantes uh, going out looking for their own vengeance, looking for their own retaliation. My disciples are not going to take God's law and manipulate it that way. My disciples are not going to take God's law, strip it from its context, and then use it to live however that they would like to live, and use it to accomplish whatever it is that they want to accomplish. We do that way too often. But Jesus is saying, this is not the standard for my disciples. Now, so I think that helps us, just just as a disclaimer to the text, what Jesus is not talking about here, is Jesus is not talking about capital punishment in the context of a country. Jesus is not talking about military, or wars, or, Jesus here is not advocating anarchy. He is not advocating pacifism right Jesus is not advocating those things instead what he is set doing is he is setting and establishing a standard of grace a standard for the gospel for which believers and disciples will now pursue in their personal lives not so much in the civic world now if we're honest when we come to the retribution principle when we come to, to Jesus' words in uh, verse, verse uh, 39 and he says but I say to you Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If we're honest there, perhaps more than any of the other commandments that we've heard Jesus teaching throughout Matthew chapter 5, this one seems most clearly to abolish the law, doesn't it? It seems most clearly to speak in contrast to the law. It seems most specifically that Jesus in some way is changing what the law says in the Old Testament. Why? Because... The Old Testament literally says what Jesus has quoted. The Old Testament literally says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a life for a life. The Old Testament says that. And the, now Jesus is coming and saying, but I'm telling you, don't live like that. I'm, com- I'm telling you, don't do that. But again, I would, I would point you back to verse 17. Remember what we talked about? Jesus did not come to abolish the law, even though our sinful ears, even though our warped understanding seems to read it that way. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, rather, Jesus came to fulfill the law. And I think, yet again, that's what we see here in our text. Here's what I mean by that. Over the last three weeks, each of the laws that Jesus has been discussing only existed as God's response to man's sinfulness. Go back to divorce. Why does Jesus say uh, Moses gave the law of divorce in uh, Matthew chapter 19? Jesus says that Moses gave the law because of why? The hardness of man's heart. Go back to last week. We talked about oaths and vows. Talking about oaths and vows, why do oaths and vows exist? Oaths and vows exist because liars exist, right? Oaths and vows are necessary because we are fallen and we are flawed and we are sinful. And So God gave us laws concerning oaths and vows because there were going to be times in which we must give an oath or give a vow to give validity to what we are saying because we have a propensity, we have a tendency toward untruthfulness, toward lying, we we'll come to this. Why would we have the retribution principle? We have the retribution principle because there's injustice in the world. We have the retribution principle because people are going to violate God's law. We have the retribution principle because people are going to sin against someone else. People are going to take other people's lives. People are going to cost people their eyes and their teeth and their, their wealth and, and, and their marriages and, a, and a numerous other things. And so God has given us this so that there might be some sense of justice. So that there might be some sense of of bridling of the sinfulness that's in the world. See, what all of these laws were meant to do is what? All of these laws were meant to point to our need for a savior. What all of these laws, whether we're talking about divorce, we're talking about oaths, or we're talking about the retribution principle, what all of them do is they all come together to say, we live in a sinful world. We ourselves are sinners. We ourselves need God's grace. We ourselves need his mercy. We ourselves need someone that can come here and make us good and make us holy and make us righteous because we are just so messed up. And so each of these laws are pointing to Christ pointing to Jesus, putting in our our hearts a longing for him, putting in our hearts an understanding of our our need, our desperate and utter need for him. See, what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about the retribution principle is he's talking about the wage system, that the wage for an eye is an eye, the wage owed for a tooth is a tooth, and to our sinful ears, to our vengeful ears, that sounds good. Good. It sounds good. Yeah, that, he better get what he deserves. Yeah, he, he better get what's coming to him, right? It feels good to us. And when we watch the news, we watch it that way. When we, when we hear of injustice, we respond to it that way. But you know what the truth is? None of us want the wage system. None of us want what's coming to us. Because Romans 6 says that the wages of sin, which by the way, we all are, we all have, is death. Death now, death forever. Separation from God, separation from his inheritance, separation from his kindness, separation from his glory, forever. So as we read this, let's not read this and think, man, that's good. Let's read this and think, man, I need grace. Man, I need Christ. Man, I need the gospel. Let's look now at the specific examples that Jesus gives us here. He gives us what are, are startling examples, bizarre examples. They, they almost take our breath away as we read them. They're, 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 uh, they're, they're so countercultural. They're so, they're so extreme. They're so radical. They, they jolt us in a sense. And by including the phrase, what, what he says, when he says, um, do not resist the eat one who is evil, by including that in there, what is he doing? He's saying all of these are in the worst case scenario, right? He's saying that all, in all of these, What is assumed is what's not actually not always the case. What is assumed is that the Christian, the disciple, is in the right and the other person is the one who is evil. The other person is the one that has done something wrong. And so he is showing us how a Christian living a gospel-centered life and a grace-drenched life pursuing after the standard of the gospel that he himself has set, he is showing us how we are to respond in the worst-case scenario when our rights have been utterly violated. When our wants have been completely neglected. When our sense of conscience has been totally offended. He's saying, this is how we respond. What does he say? What's the first example? He says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. Now, notice he says right cheek. That's very specific. Now, for the majority of us, we're right-handed. My wife is a Southpaw, but the majority of us are right-handed, right? Right? So to slap someone on the right cheek would require what? A backhanded slap, right? If I was going to slap you on the, back, on, the, on the right cheek and I'm right-handed, I would have to come to you and I would have to backhand slap you. In Jesus' day, there was nothing more dishonorable. There was nothing more disgusting. There was nothing more humiliating to somebody than to be backhanded slapped. As a matter of fact, it was considered to bring such dishonor upon you, such dishonor upon your family that if someone came to you and backhanded slapped you without any right justification in doing so, they could bring you to court and legally sue you for having done so. But what does Jesus say do? Jesus said, they've dishonored you. They've shamed you. They've slandered you? Turn to them the other cheek. Let them have that one, too. What Jesus is not advocating here is weakness. It doesn't take a weak man to turn the other cheek. It takes an incredibly strong man to turn the other cheek and to not respond with vengeance, right? So Jesus here is not advocating weakness. He's advocating meekness, but he's certainly not advocating weakness. What Jesus is not advocating here is he's not advocating for people that are abused to continue being abused. Obviously that contradicts so much of of logic and so much of grace and so much of the scriptures and the responsibility of how a domestic home is to look. What Jesus is not advocating here is that we should not defend the rights of others or that we should not fight against injustice in our lives. No, what Jesus is advocating for here is that we lay our own rights down. That we lay down our own vengeance. That we lay down our own violation. That we lay down our own offenses. Those of us that are continually victims and those of us that are continually offended by everything. We should listen up because what Jesus is saying is he's saying, you lay all of that down. You don't respond that way. The gospel demands of it. That the kingdom of God is built up and the kingdom of God is exalted when we lay down our own right to retaliation and we lay down our own desire for vengeance and we lay down our own violation of our right and our own offenses and we say, you know what, I'm going to show you grace. I'm going to respond with dignity. I'm going to respond with meekness. I'm going to respond with kindness. I'm not going to give you what you deserve because I didn't get what I deserved. The next example that Jesus gives, as he says, verse 40, And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, that's like your shirt, you'd have two or three of these, let him have your cloak as well. So in this day, you could literally sue somebody for the shirt off your back. You've heard that expression, this is where it originates. You could literally go to someone, because they didn't have a lot of possessions, but one of the things that they would have is they would have their clothes, and living in the desert, where it gets really, really hot and then really, really cold, your clothes were especially important. And so a person would have two or three tunics, which were like an undergarment. And you could go to them, had they, had they done something to you, had they stolen from you, had they taken from you. And you could sue a person that, they might, that you might take back, that you might have their tunic. But according to the Mosaic law, what you could not do is you could not sue someone for their cloak. It was seen as a survival necessity. It was seen as something that was completely necessary for a person just to be able to leave. It was the, the outer garment, that you would only have one of them. It would be very, very expensive. So, like, we're talking not members-only jackets here. We're talking, like, rare suede, right? We're talking your most priceless possession, your most important necessity. This is your shelter, right? So, so you could sue someone for, your, for their, clo- their tunic, but you could not sue them for their cloak. What does Jesus say? Give them that too. They have no legal right to it. They are in the wrong. They are the ones doing evil to you. They are the ones falsely accusing you. They are the ones falsely suing you. Don't respond with retaliation. Don't respond with vengeance. Respond with grace. Say, hey, you can have this too if it's that important to you. If it's that necessary for you. Jesus is saying, grace is going to cost you. Grace is going to be expensive in your life. Grace is going to be difficult in your life to respond as my disciple and to live as my disciple. It's just going to be bizarre. It's going to be nonsensical. It's going to be illogical. It's going to be difficult. Do it anyway. Live this way. This is the standard the gospel has set for you. The next example that Jesus gives. He says if a soldier, if a person comes to you and they compel you to to go with them one mile, go with them two miles. In Jesus' time they were uh, under the rule of the Romans. And what the Romans could do is a Roman soldier could come to those who, for whom, with whom they had uh, captured or with, for whom they had oppressed. And they could demand of you to leave whatever you were doing at any moment and to carry their burden for them. Or to carry their weapons and their shield and their gear, their backpack for them. And so, but there was a limit on the Romans. The only uh, legal way that a Roman soldier could compel you to do that is they could only compel you to do that for one mile. They could only ask you because in those days there was not a horse and there was not not an Amway train or a subway or a taxi cab. It means you had to walk all the way out there carrying this stuff and then you had to walk all the way back. You had to leave your family and you had to leave your livelihood. And you had to leave all the things that make sense that, that allow you to survive and allow you to live and allow you to thrive as a person. And so a soldier could compel you to go one mile but they could not compel you to go two. What does Jesus say? Go two. Go above and beyond. Go go beyond what's required of you. Go beyond what's asked of you. Because grace demands more. Grace demands an abundance from you. And remember who the Roman soldiers were. The Roman soldiers were the mortal enemies. They were the ones that were oppressing. They were the ones that were taking the tax money. They were the ones that were, were robbing them of, of the rich history that they had had. And so he's saying, go with him and then honor him and, and, and treat him well and treat him with hospitality and treat him with generosity and carry him two miles. Leave behind all that's comfortable. The gospel compels us to do so. The last example that he gives is he says, never refuse someone that's in need. Never, never refuse someone that wants to borrow from you. Don't, don't expect money back from them. Now, obviously, we would not do this in a way that would contradict love. Sometimes we, would, we can give to people in a way that is not loving, that we, we actually empower them to continue in sin and empower them to continue in addiction and, and a variety of other things. And, and that's really not even Jesus' point. Jesus' point here is not to give to every vagrant that you see. That's not his point here. What Jesus' point is, is that when you've got hold of the cross, when you've got a hold of the gospel, you can't hold tightly anything else. When you, when you hold tightly to whom he has made you, when you hold tightly to the transformation that he's brought in your life, when you hold tightly to the adoption that Alan has so beautifully articulated for us this morning, when you're holding tight to that, you can't hold tightly to anything else. That Christians are to live out a generosity that is extreme. That Christians are to live out a generosity that is radical. That that Christians are to live out a generosity that that is completely bizarre and foreign to the world that we live in. Because why? We have been given such generosity. We have been given such generosity that we could never match it. Now clearly throughout the text, Jesus is using hyperbole to teach us, right? He's, He's speaking in extreme terms so that we would be jolted and listen to him. But brothers and sisters, let me caution you. Don't use that as a cop out. Sometimes we read words and we know that Jesus is speaking in figurative language or he's exaggerating a little bit or he's he's speaking in hyperbole and so what do we do? Well he doesn't really expect me to live like that. What we end up doing is we end up domesticating Jesus, we end up domesticating the New Testament, making it more palatable for us to swallow. You need to understand what Jesus is saying here is extreme. What Jesus is saying here is radical. And what Jesus is saying here should compel us to live this way. If you don't believe me, if you think this is too extreme? Consider the life of the one saying them. Consider the life of the one saying them. What does the scriptures tell us of Jesus? Scriptures tell us of Jesus that he was slapped. That he was spat upon. Disgraced. And yet, he didn't defend himself. He didn't speak up. He didn't yell out. He didn't spit back. Pilate brings Jesus and says, Hey, do you want to say something? Do you want to defend yourself? He doesn't utter a word of defense. The scriptures tell us that the, the beard was ripped out of his face. And yet what does Jesus do? He does exactly what is happening in all of those. What happens in all of these examples? Jesus says, double the injury. Jesus himself doesn't just double the injury. He goes infinitely beyond that. Going to the cross with the beard ripped out of his face. Saying, I'm not going to retaliate. I'm going to die in your place. The scriptures tell us that as Jesus lay there, bleeding out. Suffocating on the cross, gargling in his own blood. That at the foot of the cross, the soldiers were casting lots for his own cloak. He knows what it means to give up a cloak. So, brothers and sisters, before you say that these aren't words that we should follow, I would beckon you to go and read the Gospels, follow the life of Jesus. Because what I believe Jesus is saying in Matthew 5 is he's saying, this is how I'm going to live. This is what I'm going to do. Follow me. Follow me. If you want to be my disciples, you're not just going to follow me when I feed 5,000. You're not just going to follow me when I'm walking on the water. You're not just going to follow me when when I'm transfigured. You're not just going to follow me when it's easy. You're going to follow me to the cross. Follow me if you would come after me what Jesus is teaching us, what Jesus was teaching them, is Jesus is teaching us the reality of self-crucifixion in the life of a Christian. Not only does the cross set us free, brothers and sisters, but the cross beckons us to come and share in its affliction. We share in Christ's affliction as we live out this life. We share in Christ's burden as we move out and live our lives. We share in the extremity, in the radical nature that it demands. We live in a, in, a, in a way that is completely nonsensical, completely illogical. That is, that is beyond human reason. Why? Because we live according to the standard of excessive grace. Excessive grace. When the New Testament talks about grace, it always talks about grace in excess. I think of Romans 5.20 when it says where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That the more sin we have, the more grace is demonstrated. That we live out in this life... Those that are following in the footsteps of one that showed ridiculous, scandalous, remarkable grace that was always given to us in excess. His grace is so excessive that it is able to forgive every sin in your past, every sin of now, and every sin of the future. His, sin, his grace is so excessive that before you even realize the extent of your own sinfulness, it was offered to you and given to you and extended to you. And so now, What Jesus is saying is if you would come after me, if you would be my disciples, if you would live with me, you must live according to the standard of excessive grace, of radical grace, of redemptive grace, of trampled grace. Because let's remember Christ on the cross as the beard dripped from his face, Christ being spat upon, being slapped, Christ having his cloak gambled for at his feet, that was not a sign of weakness. Matter of fact, there has never been a demonstration in all of human history of such strength as Christ, the God man, is constraining the forces of heaven from pouring out his wrath over all of the wickedness in the earth so that he can say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. No, that wasn't weakness, that was grace. And now Jesus is saying, Follow me and live this way. Follow me and live this way. You see, I fear, I know. That most Christians I know live a life that requires no gospel explanation. Think about it. In your life, what do you do that is so ridiculous to the world? What do you, how do you live in such a way that stands out so starkly from the darkness that surrounds you? That the only explanation that you can give when people ask you is to say, The cross compels me. The gospel compels me. The gospel demands it of me. What in your life? Because brothers and sisters, if there is no need of gospel explanation in your life, there is no demonstration or example of gospel transformation in your life. This is what Jesus is talking about. Why in the world would you turn the other cheek because of the grace because grace compels me to do so? Why in the world would you give them your cloak because the cross compels me to give it? Why would you go with him two miles with your mortal enemy when you're only required to go one mile? I will go with him because the gospel compels me to go. Why will I give ridiculously? Why will I adopt when it doesn't make sense? Why will I do the, the craziest things to the world? Why will I live in a smaller house? Why will I go without? Why? Because I'm following after the one that lives in excessive grace. And I'm following that standard. And so you can't get it. It's foolishness to you. I get it. But that's the only explanation I've got. Is that the gospel compels me to do it. I was thinking about a way to illustrate this to you. And today, being Orphan Sunday, there was only really one one illustration that came to my mind. I have really close friends, um, Jason and Donna Chilton. Jason actually grew up here at Iron City with me. And recently, they adopted two children from the Ukraine. Now, I don't know if you know what's going on in the Ukraine over the last few months, but it's been pretty rocky over there. It's been violent over there. It's been difficult over there. Now, Jason and Donna already had two kids. They had what appeared to be the American dream. They had the the house where they wanted it. They they were living with their uh, on the family land in this serene setting that looks like the great smoky mountains when you go back in there. It's It's just beautiful. They had two healthy kids. There was nothing else they could have ever wanted. They had good jobs, good life, good marriage. And yet they became convinced that the Lord was calling them to more. That the Lord was calling them to this adoption. And so when the Lord began to place this in their hearts, they, they were just looking one day, just, just, he, and, he and his wife were just looking on the computer, and they just they saw them. They saw them. And, it, and Alan, it was exactly like what you were saying. Like, I can't explain it to God. Just put it in my heart. It just had to be that. I had to do it. It was a brother and sister. The sister four, the brother two. Katya is the girl. They've renamed the little boy to Brody. Two and four. They already had a two and four year old at home, by the way. Katya, by the way, has spinal bifida and is bound to a wheelchair. And so they went, they sold things that they owned. Sold four-wheelers, sold cars, baked cakes. Did everything that they could do to raise up some money. So they might go and adopt these two children to come in and to move into their home. And they were going to have four kids under the age of five, one of which bound to a wheelchair, can't walk. And I'm convinced that right now, if we were to ask Jason and children, we were to have them right here, why did you do it? They would say, because the gospel compelled me to do it. Because I have experienced an adoption like that. Because I have experienced generosity that way. Because I have experienced love that way. And now the gospel, the cross, compels me to go and do the same thing. Brothers and sisters, wake up. Let God raise up from us more of them. Let God raise up more of us that will live recklessly for his life. Let God raise up more of us that will live lives that require gospel explanation and gospel logic because no earthly logic will do. Let God raise us up. Let God raise up brothers and sisters that will forego vacations to go to missions fields. Let God raise up brothers and sisters that will live in smaller homes so they can give away more to the needy. Let brothers and sisters be raised up That will go to the boss that everyone hates and treat him with dignity and treat him with kindness and treat him with grace. Not because he deserves it, but because you have grace. Oh God, would you raise them up. If you're like me, you hear that, you read these words, and you think the cost is just too high. Cost is just too high, and this is always the cost that that Christ is compelling us to consider before we come and follow him. But you would hear that, and you would say, I just can't pay that high of a price. It's just too expensive to me. Let me just say, if you sincerely are a brother, if you really are in Christ, if you really have experienced the gospel, let me exhort you, there is no tab of sacrifice that you can run up in this life that your inheritance will not pay off forever. Have you forgotten your inheritance? Have you forgotten that this life is fleeting, which for those of us in Christ is good news, is gospel news, because the die is gained for us. And there is no tab of sacrifice. There is nothing that you can do without now. There is no price that you can pay now. That your inheritance with glory, and glory will not pay off forever. Infinitely so, as we studied on Wiz and I Ephesians 2. You know what it says? It says that God, by his great mercy, came and he saved you. Why? Why? So that you could be given the inheritance, the kindness, the immeasurable riches of the Father forever. That God saves you so that forever he might demonstrate how rich he is and how glorious he is by bestowing on you his immeasurable riches. And so here's what I'm telling you: you can afford to live recklessly, Christian. You can afford to live recklessly. You can afford to give recklessly. You can afford to go recklessly. You can afford to do recklessly. Iron City Baptist Church, let us be a church that doesn't just hear it, but that actually lives this way. You know, it's no wonder when we read about the early church why Christianity spread so quickly, is it? We read about brothers that were selling their homes so that other brothers could live. We read about people who die refusing to renounce faith in Christ so that even those that don't believe them say these are men of faith. And it should be no surprise on the flip side of that why the gospel seems to have slowed down in our community because we aren't living that way. This is what our community needs from us. This is what the lostness that engulfs our area needs from us. They need us to live lives that require gospel explanation. And this is what the cross compels us to do. Let me pray for us this morning. Oh God.